Hello there, and welcome back to The Price of Pain. Got a great episode that I think you'll find will turn into two, maybe three episodes. My guest today is Dr. Larissa Strath and her friend Greta, who's right down here on the floor. So you may hear Greta sighing as she naps under the table throughout this episode as we talk about interactions between diet and pain. And the reason why I say this is going to end up a multiple episode uh, series is because there's so much to talk about. And you all know that I love topics that are immediately applicable to you. So these are things that you can listen to and go and apply to your own lives straight away. Everybody, even if you don't love food as much as I do, everybody eats every day, hopefully. And so there'll be some great information here that you can tend to use um, in your daily lives. If you notice, my voice is a little bit raw. It's summer season, which means I get to coach some volleyball camps. Um, unfortunately, a lot of faculty are on vacations and we're dealing with rounds of COVID still, but we're back up and running. Hopefully you enjoyed the last episode with Dr. Erica Merriweather, and uh, we're just gonna keep the ball rolling with Dr. Strath here. And we'll have to hold off until episode two until you hear more about her background because her dissertation was so interesting. We just got right into it. So. Let's just get after it. Go ahead and roll it, Kat. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. Bedside. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm biased. Right, right. Everyone thinks their dissertation is the coolest thing in the world, but not everybody. Not everybody. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, we can talk about this more later. But uh, it kind of shows everything that's been done, diet, pain related, gives a little bit of a taste from yeah. everything. And I was able to get them all published, which was really cool. Oh, all so all, all of it from your dissertation published chapters independently. Yeah, and then the introduction I restructured into a review paper. So tell, well, tell me about the dissertation then, because I know we've talked about this before, but okay. Um, if you're that excited about it, if you think it's the best thing ever, then maybe you should like said, share it with the world. Advice. But uh, so I um, was very lucky um, to be at an institution that was very collaborative. Um, which was UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Roger is an alum too, so I feel like this is just all coming full circle. Um, And was able to participate in research just like across the spectra of just research in general. So one chapter was looking kind of at molecular stuff in mice, one chapter, then we went to um, like, a epidemiological sample, so it was like 16,000 people. And then the third chapter was we started to hone in on our actual specific pain disorder. And then the last chapter was an intervention. Um, so that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so the first chapter, um, like I said, it was in rats. Um, and it was looking kind of at the neuroinflammation in their spinal cord. Mm-hmm. So we put the rats, they had either their regular chow 
or they had what we called the SAD diet, which stands for Standard American Diet. Pretty accurate, yeah. Um, and it was made to just kind of mimic what the average American eats. Uh, so it had a lot of white flour, sugar, saturated fats, not a lot of vitamins and minerals. <laughs> how, how much of those things, just with regards to the rodents, so you have their normal chow, which mm-hmm. one thing that I haven't, I don't know if we've discussed this on the podcast, but I, I was very fortunate in my undergrad to uh, to get to work some re- research methodology in a rat lab. Okay. And um, that was not common um, where I came from. So, uh, yeah, it was super cool. It was, it you know, cool. For an undergrad class to be able yeah. to use these, these giant, like, uh, Westenberg, Long Evans rats. And, yeah. And I did uh, a totally different psych degree. So I did, you know, like, um, state-dependent learning and, and oh. noise aversion and stuff. Yeah. But uh, you know, one thing that you learn, at least back then, is how well cared for the animals are and, uh, you know, really control, maybe even better so than if they were in the wild, right? Oh, yeah. Really control sure. light cycles and diet and all that stuff. So um, that's definitely not the standard American diet. No. So with with regard to the chow versus the standard American diet, what are some of the biggest things that rats normally wouldn't eat that were involved in in the set? So for sure, the refined carbohydrates. So the standard chow is obviously, it's going to be healthy for the rat. It's going to be what the rat needs. Um, it's got more complex carbohydrates. If you look at the, the pellets, mm-hmm. you can see the fiber in it. Right, right. <laughs> um, and then, um, so... Of course, the uh, the carbohydrates is a big one. Those refined sugars, refined flours. I mean, white bleached fibers removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is the fats. Uh, there really isn't a whole lot of, um, especially saturated fats in regular chow. And so, when you literally when you open the bag of the standard American diet to scoop it into their cages, it smells like cookie dough. Mm. Um, because it pretty much is cooked in pellets. <laughs> you have to keep it refrigerated. Now, is this everything. available to the public? Could, like, could, I, I mean, not, not saying I would want it, but if you wanted to, could you go buy a bag of this cookie dough pellet stuff? And... You have to order it special. Um, we'll from... talk, talk about that. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll chop it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you... Uh, <clears throat> and then the lack of vitamins and minerals. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Um, the addition of trans fats. Trans fats are not normally found in nature the only places you're going to find it is in the um, stomachs of ruminating animals so that is the only place that trans fats are kind of found naturally uh every time now in in foods if you see trans fats that is all man-made fat and that is why they cause such a problem is because our bodies were not made to process trans fats with regard to diet Okay. So you you mentioned the 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 relatively tightly controlled chow and mm-hmm. what what types of substrates the rodents would eat naturally mm-hmm. versus the sad mm-hmm. um which sounds really tasty. I know. Um but rats in the city. I'm just curious. This is just mm-hmm. I'm, we're going to I'm going to get off the rails here a little bit. But you know rats that are scavenging for stuff, do they replicate a diet that they would normally find in in the wild, if not the city's not the wild, or do you find that some of these things that you're about to tell us about the sad also apply to urban rodents? 
That's a good question that I, I'm full I, of those. I, I don't know. I know. Right. So I'm just like, oh. <laughs> Sorry, um, go ahead. <laughs> that's a good question that I would maybe ask to a, you know, zoologist person who studies that. But if I were to hypothesize, I would imagine that they would, you know, tend towards foods that make them feel good. And so, um, I mean, if you think about dogs and cats, mm -hmm. uh, usually, well, not dogs, but yeah. Well, that's why, that's why I asked, but, uh, right? You know, um, but typically, from my understanding, when an animal eats something that does not make it feel great, mm -hmm. they'll start to avoid it. Um, so I believe that the regular chow would kind of mimic what they'd be normally eating, even if it were, you know, a city. An urban. An, an urban, urban, an urbanite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I... I would push back on that a little bit because uh, mm -hmm. humans are terrible at that. I'm an example of this. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I have a, a pretty steady diet of things that don't make me feel great at all, which I need to address. Right. Um, uh, and I don't feel the, the least bit self-conscious about that talking you know, to somebody with your background right now. 100% um, sarcasm. Uh, but, you know, in dogs, dogs are a great example. Mm -hmm. right? I had a, I had a, a Pomeranian, supposed to be a Pomeranian, back when I was in high school. And uh, he would eat himself sick all the time. Mm -hmm. um, Thanksgiving, you know, throw the turkey carcass in the, the bin mm -hmm. out by the you know, side of the house. And that dog somehow got out and took the bin over and was eating a turkey carcass. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think Pomeranians would bring down turkeys in the wild, but he sure was going to town on that carcass mm -hmm. and was not okay for days a while. afterwards. <laughs> it's probably just a I mean, lot, it, just a lot. Right. It, I mean, all of us that ate the turkey had the itis for a while, right? Yeah, you know, right. It was pretty much like football and nap time, but that dog, it lasted for about a week. So right. um, he probably ate his weight in, in turkey skin and stuff. But right. Anyway, that's the only reason I asked yeah. is that'd be oh, yeah. interesting. Please it, carry on. Yeah, no, it was, that's a very interesting question that I, don't have the expertise on, but we can we can ask somebody. Somebody knows. Yeah, somebody knows. Okay. Someone out there knows. Feel free to uh, you know put in the comments section or mm -hmm. or link any articles. You know. Yep. Um, okay. Yep. Um, where was I? Oh, so they were on either the standard American diet, sad diet, or they were on the regular mm -hmm. chow, um, and they were on it for sixteen weeks. So. What was very interesting and what you would expect is the, you know, the regular chow rats, they kind of grew to be normal, healthy sized rats. Um, the sad rats, they got very fluffy. We'll just put it that <laughs> way. <laughs> they got, you held them and they kind of just like mm. oozed over your hand. That's they, got, they got very big. Yeah. Um, and then, um, what we did is so at uh, eight weeks and 16 weeks, you know, you have to unfortunately euthanize someone or some, a lot of these animals, all of the animals in order to look at their spinal cord. So this was even, even eight weeks on this diet, there was that much of a, a noticeable change oh, yeah. in their body composition. Yeah. Um, okay. Big, big change. Um, because they, you know, they have shorter lifespans. So they, the process is almost like speed up. Sure. Um, and so, you know, we euthanized some at eight weeks and some at 16 weeks. And this is the only thing we've done to them at this point was change their diet. Mm -hmm. um, we extract their spinal cords, you know, put them under the microscope, do some cool staining, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you count, I spent a lot of time <laughs> counting microglial cells, okay. um, which are basically one of the big immune cells in 
your central nervous system. And they are a really good indicator of neuroinflammation within the brain and the spinal cord. Um, so that's what we stained for in the spinal cords of these these rats. Now with the microglial cells, is it the number of cells or the size of the cells? What are you looking for when you stain? So in this particular experiment, we were looking at the number okay. um, because microglial cells will kind of like macrophages in the periphery, they'll kind of lay dormant until they're needed. Mm -hmm. um, and they can basically um, be turned on into different phenotypes depending on what they're needed for. So we're looking for activated microglia in the spinal cord. Um, and when they're active, they're normally pumping out cytokines and mm -hmm. scavenging um, for you know dead cells, trying to clear debris, all that kind of stuff, just like a macrophage, a white blood cell would in the periphery. This is just happening in the central nervous system. Um, and it's just, it's very indicative of neuroinflammation. So the more, or I guess the greater amount of activated microglia you have, um, the hypothesis, the greater the amount of neuroinflammation within that area. Stands to reason. Is it, yeah. is it relatively compartmentalized? For example, would you see an increase in microglia in the brain if there was neuroinflammation in the spinal cord or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, Yep, from my understanding, you would. We were in this particular experiment, we were looking at the dorsal horn of the lumbar region of the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big um, pain processing area within the spinal cord is the dorsal horn of that of the cord. Mm -hmm. um, and we were looking at lumbar because we eventually were going to injure their foot. Um, so we needed to have nerves that would go, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, go there. Um, but um, so you, you know, slice the spinal cord, stain it, you're looking for activated microglia and the rats that were fed the SAD diet had an exponentially greater amount of activated microglia compared to the regular. Nothing else had changed at all. So they hadn't been injured, nothing. Um, so it stands to reason that, you know, it was the diet that right. did it. Um, and, you know, even without injuring yourself or having any kind of external reason to have inflammation, it was just the consumption of these, these unhealthy nutrients. Okay. And so if this is at eight weeks, mm -hmm. um, what, you know, obviously whenever you talk about preclinical studies, the, right. you know, animal studies, the, the question that everybody has is, okay, well, how does that relate to people? Obviously right. we would expect, um, the, the same, you know, proliferation of, of microglia in, mm. in humans. But what I'm curious about is if they've been fed this from, you know, a, a very young age throughout mm. maturation, what would an eight week old rat, how would an eight week old rat compare to uh, a human? Like what age would that correlate to? So that's a hard question to answer because right now we don't have very great imaging techniques to look at the spinal cords of humans while they're alive <laughs> right but I, I mean just, so, just as far as yeah. just as far as lifespan though like is it is an eight week or eight week old rat fully mature no so that would be an adolescent rat yeah so okay. the rats that were in this particular study that were mature rats they mm -hmm. weren't fed it since their childhood okay um they were on regular chow and then switched over okay. to a sad diet so okay. they were all adults so okay. 
They were but it was eight weeks long for the duration. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Understand. So there was eight weeks, and then there were some that were on for sixteen weeks, and it was basically you saw this kind of exponential increase. That's that one graph, uh, the red and the and the white graph. And if you're listening along uh, on one of the audio only podcasts, you won't be able to see this, but mm -hmm. I guess this is a good plug for uh, for those who are listening along. If you want to see some of the images that that we're discussing here, we'll do our best to uh, mm -hmm. to describe what we're seeing as we look at it. But uh, you can always hop over to the YouTube channel mm -hmm. and jump onto our episode there and see these for yourselves. Okay. All right, so yeah. we're looking at a graph here and it looks like uh, we're comparing the regular diet to the SAD diet. Yep, and um, the white background um, is pre any kind of injury. So that was what I was saying earlier. The only thing that has changed about these 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 rats is their diet. So we have two data points there. It looks like 56 mm -hmm. days and 112 days. Yeah, so that's your eight week and your 16 week mm -hmm. um, mark. Um, so you can see that uh, there's these increases in the amount of activated microglia um, in the sad fed rats versus the regular fed um, rats. Then you jump over to the other side. So that gray area, um, background of the graph, um, is days post CFA. So CFA um, is uh, a uh, inflammatory inducing um, injury. Right. So it's an inflammatory injury that you can put, um, you just kind of shoot it into their hind paw. Mm -hmm. It makes the paw inflamed. Um, it doesn't last super long, um, but it can give some really cool data. Um, and it's enough to, to, to elicit the inflammatory response cascade. Yes, exactly. Okay. So as you can see on day one, um, it's exactly what you would expect. You'd have, you know, in both animals, you'd have this kind of increase in activated microglia as the immune system kind of kicks on. Mm -hmm. So we don't really see a huge difference. There were a little, you know, a couple more in the sad fed rats. Mm -hmm. um, so as, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject here as we mm -hmm. go looking at this. Both the, the regular diet and the sad diet um, are, I don't want to use the word significantly, are, are much greater number of cells over what we're seeing in the pre-injury um, portion of the graph. Uh, it looks like it, almost twice as much, Yeah. but there's no difference between the two no. at that no. time. This is yeah. only day one. Okay. Exactly. And so that's, you know, expected, um, an expected response mm -hmm. uh, from any rat um, as well as any human being. Um, is that you would have kind of this increase in inflammatory processes. Um, but what was interesting was the recovery from the injury. So normally um, it doesn't take super long. As you can see, as the days kind of tick on, um, the regular side rats are starting to get back to you know, same amount of um, act activating microglia within um, that dorsal horn region mm -hmm. as time goes on, but the sad fed are not. They're still hanging out still um, and it's elevated. Um, and so for each of the, for each of the data points here, it looks like eight days, 15 mm -hmm. days, 29 days, 50 days, post injury, post, -injury. post induced injury. Yeah. There is a significant difference between the amount of microglia in the regular diet and the sad fed rats for each of those data points. So mm -hmm. that day one was the same, mm -hmm. but the diet affected those who were on the sad diet, it affected their ability to mitigate the inflammation, recover from the injury and so on and so forth, where the others um, 
I mean, it's it's hard to tell even with error bars, um, mm -hmm. but but again, it looks like on day one as we're looking at this graph, it looks like both are in the ballpark of, uh, and this is the mean number of microglia per I would assume per area, mm -hmm. um, and so there's the units. Um, I don't know if they're number. I guess it's just number of cells. Yeah, number so of cells. so sixty cells per whatever the area is right at day one. Um, day two for the regular diet. It looks like it's down somewhere around thirty. So yeah. it cuts it like cuts it right in half, and that's just the the natural response of the rat's body to yeah. to basically go through this this recovery phase. And, mm -hmm. and and then the microglia. What happens to the microglia when they go away? Are they what are they? They just go back to kind of that dormant phenotype okay. um, uh, until again they're needed, and you know they also go through their you know natural proliferation, right. apoptosis, those kinds of things right. as well. Um, and so, and, and then the, the sad diet, um, like I said, uh, the regular diet went from 60 down to about 30 and the sad diet was right around 60 as well, but is still elevated at at least 40. looks like it might even be a little bit above and mm -hmm. stays there. Um, maybe even going up a little, uh, throughout the, the next 40 days or so, all the way to the 50 day yeah. post induced injury point. Yeah, so they just, they have a hard time recovering yeah. from this injury. And, you know, it, it's kind of a hot topic now in social media and everyone's talking about, you know, chronic inflammation. And I think it's great that it's being talked about, but this is kind of showing, you know, if you can't recover from an injury because of, you know, you're not eating well, even if you say you, you know, you sprain your ankle, you cut yourself and you have this inflammatory process, you're almost subjecting yourself to chronic inflammation, even though, right. um, you know, the injury might seemingly be gone. There's still within the central nervous system, this inflammatory process going on. And we know that, that chronic inflammation has a, a quite a drastic effect on overall health across yes. all organ systems. Yes. And so that's that's why I was asking a little bit about the age of the rats and so on and so right. forth. That's my yeah. misunderstanding initially, uh, as no, far as the age okay. when they brought in or they were brought in, or level of maturation, I should say. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I'd be interested to look at the literature, but chronic inflammation likely has an effect on development as well. Mm -hmm. And so if, if, if your body is in this inflammatory response process, then that's, that's less of available resources that can be devoted to you know, maturation of bone and nervous mm -hmm. tissue and so on and so forth. And specifically because we're talking about spinal cord tissue, uh, central mm -hmm. nervous system tissues here. Uh, that's why I was curious, yeah. knowing how poorly fed yeah. the average human child is in America. Well, so. I mean, one of the like prime examples of this, um, one disease that is heavily induced by inflammation is type 2 diabetes. Of course. Um, used to be called ju or ju uh, yeah, juvenile diabetes. Juvenile diabetes. Um, um, well, sorry, juvenile diabetes was type 1. Adult onset diabetes was type 2. Correct. Sorry, correct myself there. <laughs> um, <laughs> we cannot call it adult onset diabetes anymore because so many children are getting type 2 diabetes. Mm. Type 2 diabetes is very, 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 very influenced by diet, mm -hmm. obviously, but also very induced by or influenced by inflammation as well. And the fact that so many kids are getting it 
scares me a little bit um, because I don't know what that's going to mean for their future um, in terms of other health issues, like how early on are you going to get cardiovascular disease? Um, How is this going to affect your mental health? Because we're now learning that, you know, people who have depression may have inflammation of, you know, the brain. What is this going to mean in terms of your quality of life later on? What is it going to mean for your chronic pain? Because obviously inflammation is involved in the pain process. Um, are you going to get chronic pain earlier? Or is, is this going to be more of a prevalence in this kind of generation that's growing up? Like I said, widespread influence, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and not just on health, uh, but specifically on maturation mm-hmm. uh, and development yeah. that may continue through adulthood to affect, you know, the rest of, of maybe, maybe how well you can potentiate your own health too exactly. would be a way to think about it, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's, I don't know, it's, a, it's something that I think about. Um, I think we, as a society, need to do better in terms of nutritional education. Yeah. Um, that's one of the biggest, biggest things um, that we could do now um, in order to try and combat some of that, because if we don't have the education, how am I to expect that you're going to go to the grocery store and make these informed choices if you have no idea, you know, yeah. what you're talking about? Well, only compounded, of course, by the fact that there's a, a strong relationship between socioeconomic status and quality yes. of diet, right? A hundred percent, yeah. Any, anybody that's tried to say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat healthy from here on out. There are two things that, that seem to be intimately related to that. The amount of money that you have to spend on a healthy diet, yeah. it's it's more costly to, to eat healthy, mm-hmm. but also the time, right? If you're going to prepare your own food and preparing food for your family, uh, and I'm guilty of this also, mm-hmm. you, you get this, uh, well, man, I, I don't I don't have time or it's so late that I don't, don't want to cook and then do the dishes before I go to bed. It'd just be a lot easier to order a pizza okay. or hit the drive-thru on the way home or you know, call DoorDash, which I've actually never done. I've definitely done that. <laughs> <laughs> COVID, I think, but yeah, but, uh, yeah there, there are a lot of impediments, but but just like you said, just the education, because uh, there certainly are ways that you can that you can at least offset some of the time and cost mm-hmm. uh, as far as, as dietary behavior. Yeah, and that's a very interesting like field of research that it's not my primary field of research, but in the future, I think like there's there was a time in my PhD where I was like maybe I should go into policy, mm-hmm. um, and you know try and you know and that's still not off the table, um, just because I think if we are to make a change, that's going to have to come from the top down as well as you know on the ground um, because I mean just some of the things we allow in our food is not great. Um, the one kind of soapbox that my old PhD mentor and I, Rob Sorge, both share is the complete and utter lack of nutritional education in medical school. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, that could be a whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's my so, personal soapbox. So part of me is like, do I want to go into like that kind of space and try to work on medical school education? Um, because it's just, it's not fabulous. Uh, and, you know, they're the ones diagnosing people with these disorders and mm-hmm. the patients kind of look at them for a solution. 
And if they don't know that, you know, the lifestyle choices that you're having and experiencing every day um, and having to make are going to be impacting your outcomes, then, you know, it's not the doctor's fault if they don't know to not tell them. Um, So. And it's not that they don't get training, but when you look at all of the training that goes into diagnosis and treatment, as opposed to, and this may very well be across the board. I didn't go to medical school either, so I can't say, but um, know some people who have been close with. However, um, shout out to my girlfriend, Michelle. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the obviously the focus in, in medicine is more on diagnosis and treatment exactly. as opposed to prevention. And dietary behavior is, I would, I think it would be safe to say that, that diet and activity mm-hmm. together are the number one behavioral intervention that if there's such a thing as a panacea of any kind, mm-hmm. that's it. Proper diet, proper, and of course you can throw in sleep in there as well. I think you probably should, and I'm, I'm, I've probably already yep. sent somebody to sleep. <laughs> what about sleep? Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it, just the amount of time that's devoted to that. Is, yeah. is, and with many things in medicine, you know, we're working on the research and then we have to publish the research and then that has to get to the physicians. And so a lot of times what we're seeing in trends in the literature, that's still, I hate to say it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it out loud. In some cases, that's five to 10 years ahead of what's being disseminated clinically. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, this was like, that's the, like I said, it was a soapbox of ours that we did a bunch of research and there is actual research that has been done about the medical school education of nutrition mm-hmm. and a lot of the medical schools don't even meet the standard amount of hours for nutrition education so yeah so there's this compounding effect of like i understand that you know cancer and die, like all these things please learn about that <laughs> as well like and i also understand that there's 24 hours in a day but how can we get to a space where, you know, nutrition, um, prevention, and as a treatment, because there is, um, we can talk about this later, there is some, there's a lot of research that's being done of diet as a treatment as well um, within the medical school space, because within society, you know, doctors are regarded as, you know, that authority. And sure. if they're starting to say, you know, you need to do this, the X, Y, Z with your diet. You need to, re- and they really start to push, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, stress management, all those kinds of things. I think we'll see a big change. So um, just to kind of circle back though, on the um, kind of barriers to food access. Um, I like to think that there's four of them. So income being one of them for sure. Um, uh Obviously, we're in 2022, and the uh, price of food is ridiculous right now. Yeah, so true. <laughs> um, and I am, you know, slightly above the poverty line, and I'm feeling it. So I can't imagine if I was below the poverty line. Um, and then you commented on, and I think they kind of are tied together, income and time. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of people who are, you know, lower socioeconomic status, they're working multiple jobs. Yeah. So, you know. The mom gets up in the morning, you know, she works like all day and then she has to rotate her night shift and she also has to feed her kids. And um, so I, you know, met 
some people who have fed their kids McDonald's every day because they thought that as long as they're getting calories in, that's fine. Right. Um, so it's easy and it's convenient. Um, but turns out all calories are not created equal. No, a calorie is you not a calorie. <laughs> which, which may bring you to the third point, right? Yeah. And so what's the third barrier? So uh, what, you know, third barrier uh, would be the education piece um, as well as, um, and I'll kind of come back to that and plug cooking while here in a second. But yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. We've got a bit of time. So yeah, can... so, um, but I would say one, there's the four of them. So one being income, two, I would say climate change for mm-hmm. sure. There's a, again, oh, my kind of an aside nerding out on things is the planet is warming uh, and that is going to affect food, um, especially uh, food that um, is dependent, is very temperature uh, sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the research is is interesting. Um, we're in we're in for a shock probably within the next couple of decades, mm-hmm. and there will probably be a shift in the the diets of human beings and the recommendations and actually the sources of where we're getting these things. So there's a really good book. Uh, it's called Uncertain Harvest. Um, it basically compiles all of this this research about, you know, the future of food and the warming of the planet um, in a really digestible way, pun intended. Um, but from what I've heard, um, and this is, I think, something that I'm going to have to wrap my mind around. Um, it's very common in other cultures, not so much in Western culture, is bugs. It's going to be a really big one mm-hmm. where we get our protein from because there's a lot of bugs. <laughs> um, so there will be a lot of bugs, a lot of rice. Um, rice uh, is going to be one that is... Will suffer or will become more will common? Will become more common. Yeah, yeah. totally. totally that. Um, more so than the bugs. More so than the bugs, yes. Uh, things like caribou, um, Algae will need to start eating things like algae because they it it likes the warm mm-hmm. it likes being warm, um, but things like so yeah so climate change that is sounds abysmal that alone <laughs> for those for those who are uh, maybe reluctant and I don't think we're on this too much on the science podcast but those who may be reluctant to accept the fact that climate change is is a real issue yeah. Um, just the possibility that you may be eating a diet consisting of grasshoppers and algae mm-hmm. uh, would be enough for me to maybe yeah. recycle more or, or yeah, you know, exactly. ride, <laughs> ride my bike more often instead of driving, I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever can be done. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. When I get sushi, now this is gonna sound really good. Okay. So it's not very often, <laughs> not a sushi. Um, but I I even try to get the, the rice paper or edamame paper. Because I don't like the taste of the seaweed paper and sushi. I'm not a huge fan of it either. It's a very particular. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me of, I used to have in my office way back in the day, I used to have an aquarium, freshwater Mm -hmm. aquarium in my office. Not a big one, but uh, it was cool. Yeah. But you know that smell you get when it's like time to clean the aquarium, check the pH and all that stuff. And I always equate that to the, you know, the the sushi roll with the seaweed. And so when you said algae, that's immediately where my mind went. And and then and then about the bug thing. Mm-hmm. I've been to markets where you know dried bugs are a mm-hmm. thing and, and I went to a wedding in 
let's see, this would have been Charleston. Okay. Uh, it's a while ago. Yeah. Two of my friends who are physicians um, and longtime friends of mine, uh, they were getting married. And so uh, my wedding buddy, I was single at the time, and a, a mutual friend of ours was like, well, you know, we'll, we'll do a wedding. And we went around, they had a farmer's market there in the square in Charleston. It was fantastic. I, I loved it. Uh, but they had these cookies, just marvelous looking cookies, mm -hmm. they chocolate chip cookies, right? But they weren't just chocolate chip cookies. They were made with, it was either grasshopper or crickets. Crickets is common. Crickets yeah. is very common. Yeah, well, I, uh, I passed on that. <laughs> my, my wedding buddy was like, oh, I'll try one of those. She did not do well with that. Well, yeah. And so, like you said, it's not common in, in Western society to eat bugs um not on purpose yeah, yeah. um but so when i was in um where was I? I was in malawi africa um and there was a street vendor who was selling uh it was crickets mm -hmm. and um another one that was common is mealworms dried mealworms hard pass yeah so i tried them they actually barbecue flavoring on them and if i if i i that i think it's a mind game for 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 Western people, just because we just weren't, we didn't grow up eating that. And sure. I mean, the same goes like we would, you know, talk about some of the things we would eat in, you know, U.S. or Canada, well, and know, they would look at me like, "This is stuff." You know what else they put barbecue on? Yeah. Uh, pork, chicken. Yeah. <laughs> These are all fine by me. Okay? Chips. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it wasn't horrible. If if I could, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the worst it wasn't the worst thing ever. But uh, again, like I said, it's not something that right. we're used to. Um, but we're probably going to have to get used to. There's actually a restaurant in New York um, that it's everything's made of bugs, um, mm. and you wouldn't know. You would have mm. no idea. They have like chocolate mousse. They have. Does everything. it say anywhere? When you say you wouldn't know, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. But I'm not going to accidentally wander into this place, right? Like no, I'm, I'm no. very much against this. <laughs> I've, I've never been in New York City. I've, I've been overseas and whatnot. I've never been in New York City, and the the off chance that I would accidentally wander into the bug restaurant and be a bug pizza or something is enough to make me not want to go to New York City. Yeah. Is it very clearly? Yeah. Stated yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um. So you know, going in kind of what you're in for, but if you those that would go in there know what they're yeah. Doing. But if you were to like get catering and then like cater party and then have everybody eat everything and then after they're like, oh by the way that was bugs that was bugs <laughs> they would have no idea <laughs> yeah that's uh so you know uh, it's gonna it's probably gonna become a reality so climate change um a big one um food access big <laughs> one huge one so if you just google food deserts in america on the map and there you can get like a heat map i think we have a heat map we have a heat I brought the heat map. Let's take a look at the heat um, map. While you're describing this, go ahead. Um, so there's a lot, especially in the southeast. So Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida's in there. Um, on the heat map, there's not a lot of data available for Florida. Um, so that's probably why, mm -hmm. I would guess. Um, so when you're talking about a food desert within an urban area, um, it's not having access to a grocery store within a mile, like if you buy kind of by car. So mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, walking with your groceries for a mile is that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And within rural areas, I believe it's 10 miles. Um, okay. So 
a lot of that's going to have to come from infrastructure. Um, so I had the pleasure of living in Alabama for the last 10 years of my life. Um, and Alabama is one of the top places where there's food deserts. And I mean, when I was living there, I mean, I had access to a car and everything, but I was technically within a food desert because my closest grocery store was three miles. Mm. Um, so if I didn't have a car, right, I was, right. you know, plumb out of luck. So, well, and, and that all, that all ties in with what we were speaking of earlier. Mm -hmm. So let's say, oh man, I have to walk a mile with groceries, which really does sound like a first world problems kind of thing. Right. You know, you could think of worse thing. Yeah. However, with just the amount that you could carry, uh, the alternative is, well, you just don't shop as much, right? But that means yeah. you have to go to the grocery store more frequently. Mm -hmm. And that's not a luxury that no. many people are able to, uh, to no. enjoy. And so, yeah, so when you look at the heat map, you'll see like that southeastern mm -hmm. quarter of the United States um, got a lot of food deserts. So uh, more than 10% um, Within those, those are all done by the counties okay, okay. Um, of of the states. And you can see kind of Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, all over there is kind of, but what's interesting is five, if you, So five, five to 10% of the population then of that county would be in a food desert where yeah, they would have so to go Yeah, so it would have no car, no supermarket store within a mile. Wow. Um, and it was really interesting is if you take a map of chronic pain prevalence, cardiovascular disease, and you do like a layover, mm -hmm. it's almost identical. Oh. So it, which is really kind of, I mean, it's interesting, it's sad, but it's, it's interesting. Um, What's really wild to me though, is if looking at this map, now there, there are some darker regions that, mm -hmm. that would be you know, greater than 10%. Um, but you can see, for example, uh, in the Southwest, um, you know, a lot of those those two large portions that's mm -hmm. that's reservation there yep. um yeah but north of that there's some really wide open yeah. desolate country but they're not dark on the no. heat map and they still have you know so the people who are you know vacationing in uh, you know their their you know seasonal home in Jackson Hole. Yep. Uh, <laughs> They're good. They've got the money to make sure that, you know, there's a grocery store in nearby and all that and have a vehicle to get to it. And, yeah. Mm. And I mean, and so it's going to have to come from a lot of infrastructure um, stuff with probably within the cities and the counties themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I know that in Birmingham, where I spent the last um, half of my Alabama stint, um, we were really great mayor there. I say we, I, like I live there still. Um, named Randall Woodfin, who's working really hard um, to kind of fix this within the Birmingham area. Mm -hmm. um, they've devoted a lot of money to, um, you know, opening fresh supermarkets that are not only, you know, geographically available, but they're also financially accessible. Mm -hmm. um, they have good quality food because that's the other problem is that you know, you might have a grocery store kind of nearby, but when you're, especially when you're in lower income pockets of the city, the food quality isn't great. Um, so even if you do have access to a store, it's mm -hmm. not going to be, you know, high also, quality. I'd also be curious because you said there are two components looking back at this heat map. And, and for those, again, that are just listening in, um, there's a, a really large cluster. This, this, we're looking at a map of 
of not just the continental U.S., but but uh, Alaska and Hawaii as well. Um, and it's stratified. Uh, there's a, a fair part. Uh, for example, the, the lower 48 seems to be accounted for. Alaska and Hawaii, there's no data available. But for the rest, there's less than 2.5% of the population. And, and as uh, Dr. Strath said, it's divided by county. Uh, so, so it's in categories, less than 2.5%. 25 to 5%, 5.1 to 10%, and then greater than 10%. And I alluded to some of the darker areas, like out west, for example, um, but there are plenty of those that are scattered throughout the southeast. And I would say um, what we traditionally refer to as the south. You, you, you can almost follow the Mason-Dixon line yeah. and, and see <laughs> where these counties are, are concentrated. Now, there are some smatterings in other parts of the country up in up in the Dakotas and Montana, um, but they're just a vast majority of these counties that are are five to ten percent or ten percent or greater are not just in rural areas in the South either. I look at this and and throughout Louisiana and in Mississippi, there are areas that are most certainly urban areas, and so I wonder if the component is also not just that they're you know the distance, but you said that if they don't have a vehicle, exactly, and so circling back to the socioeconomic status. Because if you look at, um, again, like I said, I've never been to New York City, but I, I know where it is. And if you look up in that area, this is not an issue here. You know, there's public no. transit, there's um, maybe maybe more bodegas in the city and whatnot, because people in New York City notoriously don't have cars typically, exactly. right? Yeah. But, but it's not an issue here. No. It's down in the South. Yeah, and um, that kind of ties into like another of my dissertation chapters that we were talking about earlier when we did like the Another epidemiological publication. Um, I was lucky actually I was spoiled at UAB. I don't believe in luck, but um, that's, that's hard work. That's good. <laughs> um but so looking at um the regards study. Mm -hmm. So the regards study um started um to look at racial and ethnic differences in um, like things like cardiovascular disease, geographical differences in cardiovascular disease, things like that, and stroke. Mm -hmm. um, and then it kind of expanded into this plethora of disorders. Um, so it's a really neat study. Um, one of the house, the main hubs for it is UAB. Um, so I kind of wandered over there one day and was like, does anyone do pain data on <laughs> by any chance? Like I don't see pain publications coming out from the regard stuff, but do you have anything? And um, Dr. Suzanne Judd, awesome lady, she just was like, I think we do. Do you want to take a look at it? If we do, and I went, I will need to help from a biostatistician. And she <laughs> hooked me up with a great biostatistician. Shout out to Markita. I wouldn't have published this paper without her um, because I had never worked with a data set of 30,000 before. That's insane. Um, and I, use SPSS primarily as my statistical software, which involves clicking buttons. Mm -hmm. um, she uses actual code. <laughs> yeah. um, and what took her a few weeks would probably take me my entire five-year PhD. Right. You know? um, so basically, we so the, about 16,000 had pain data available. And we were able to kind of make this pain variable binary. Yes, I have had pain for more than six months. Mm -hmm. No, I have not. Um, and what we were able to do is um, use these previously derived diet patterns that the they regards team created based off of food frequency questionnaires. 
Um, there were five of them. So there's the convenience diet, which we were kind of touching on with pizza, you know, Chinese food, takeout, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the sweets and fats, where it's primarily just like sugary drinks um, and high amounts of saturated fats. Sounds awesome. No, not very really, sweet. Not really. um, there was the southern diet, um, which is similar to sweets and fats, um, but the composition of what made up those sweets and fats is what was different. So there's, um, you know, a lot of saturated fat, trans fat, mm-hmm. think sweet tea, a lot of sugar, all those kinds of fried things. Food. Every, yeah, fried food. Yeah. Um, and even if, and organ meats are great for you, but when you, you know, deep fry them, yeah doesn't really offset <laughs> the good doesn't quite outweigh the bad right. um because you can get into a whole conversation about the fact that when you heat oil you're gonna get free radicals right. but again that's a whole other thing um this is i i want to point this out also we've had a chance to talk about your dissertation data and continuing yeah. to yeah. intersperse with these other conversations um but there's so much practical information that i yeah. know that you carry around in your back pocket yes <laughs> and um, we've had conversations about this before. As a matter of fact, that we've talked about you coming on the podcast, but really started to hone in on that a little bit when we were at a conference in Cincinnati, yeah. right? In Cincinnati, we were in Cincinnati. Sure, um, that's right. That was a great conference and, and nice to get back in person. Yeah. But but the you know we I guess we're just kind of you know shoot the breeze. Yeah. And and there were maybe five topics that I. Oh, would yeah. have loved to talk about, but we've been talking for almost 50 minutes now <laughs> on just your dissertation. And I, you know, it's a wonderful plug I for know. you and your many first author publications. I know, I know. Um, it's, it's, but when you're done talking about yourself, okay. yeah. um, no, this has yeah. been really useful. But what I would like to do is uh, see if you'd be interested in, in, in maybe making this a two part podcast. Yes, let's do that. Um, and then, yeah. Yeah. Because have... I would really like to also, you know, there, this is so interesting as as we've talked that there were many points where I was like, yeah, I could really spin this and kind of steer you back toward what got you into this and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, but I was too interested in what we're talking about. Uh, so, I know, right? It's, it's really good <laughs> stuff. And and I love um, topics and, and particularly podcast guests that, that much like the science I, I try to conduct, yeah. people can take it and apply it. Yeah. Because so often as researchers, as scientists, we get very interested in something. And then when we talk to John Doe, Jane Doe on the street, all they want to know is, what does that mean for me? What can, yeah. what can you do for my pain? What, well, what, what food should I be eating? Mm-hmm. And you're one of the few guests where there's a, a, a immediately applicable aspect yeah. to what you do. And, and even some resources that I think we should maybe bring chapter one to a close. Yep. And as much as I would like to talk for another hour, and just split it up in post-production. <laughs> um, what we can do is have you back on. I'd love to hear about how you got to this point uh, in your training and your education and your research. And then because we've had a chance to talk about the science, mm-hmm we can maybe lace the, the next conversation with a little bit of science, but, but steer a little bit more toward, yeah. you know, dietary recommendations. Well, not recommendations. I don't, I don't want to go too far out of scope, but, but some, some things that the science tells us that, that you can 
you know, hit stop, hit pause and start making a grocery list or go, mm-hmm. oh, do I eat too much of that? And one of the things that always fascinates me was <laughs> TikTok. <sighs> TikTok does not fascinate me, but there, my algorithm straight food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is a physician on there who yep. routinely debunks. I wish I could plug his name. I can't think of it. But by the time we come back from the next one, I will. But um, I want to say it's Dr. I want to say IDZ. Kids. <gasps> is, you know the guy yes, I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. And he's he great. just, yeah, he's phenomenal. Talking about physicians that, that do know do their know. dietary stuff. They've taken the time right. to know. And so somebody will put up a video about, like, oh, you should blah, 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 blah. And, and he debunks it and uses cited literature to do so. So right. all evidence right. based. It's phenomenal. Um, but for an example, there was a recent one. Um, I went. I went and got a blood panel recently. Okay. Um, divulging my, you know, PHI yes, stuff on, on for everybody to know. Um, this is you being me. That's true, right? Right. right. <laughs> or my physician. Exactly. But uh, you know, so after anybody that's listened to more than one of, of these episodes, um, you know, I so I had an injury a while back and it affected my activity, and then COVID came along and that affected my activity and definitely my diet. And, and now what I have is a litany of excuses for why I'm really just not in good shape mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, I, I knew that this was going to be the case. And like a good little boy, I went and actually went to a doctor about it, yep. knowing that I was going to get bad news, but wanting it because of my background, I can yeah. make some adjustments. How and, bad am I? Right. I just want to know the yeah. scope. And maybe- I want to know where it is. I, I clearly know where I want to be so I can just you know plan out. Plan yeah, plan. Or maybe having like a happy surprise that you're not as deep in the hole as you thought you were. I did get a little bit of that. Yay! Yeah, right? Thank you. <laughs> um, but this, I'm, I'm going to bring this full circle with this Dr. Okay. Ids, Dr. Ids, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly. But uh, one of the things I, I need to do is, is you know, control blood sugar and get mm-hmm. some cholesterol under control. And, and that's very easy to do. With, easy to do. With diet and exercise if you have the education. Right. And so one of one of the best things that you can do, surprisingly enough, is just up your oats content or uh, intake rather, right? Yeah. So like oatmeal in the morning. Now you probably shouldn't put like you know three scoopfuls of, of heavy molasses, dark brown sugar in there. And, yeah, um, that's, you know. <laughs> I'm not saying maybe I should rephrase that. You shouldn't do that if you want the benefits of. Yeah. Oatmeal. You it, should I'll, definitely do that. A little really bit. Good. It's okay. Yeah. Everything well, in moderation. So we'll talk more about that. Ch- but check like, check me out, yeah. my relatively uneducated self, on yeah. this topic, but. You know, oatmeal, okay. right? And uh, almonds, mm-hmm. diced apple, not very much okay. of it, a little bit, right? A little bit yeah. of cinnamon, okay. some, some trip agonists in there. And uh, right. yeah, that's that's pretty much it, right? A lot of times water, even though I do like milk, so sometimes I'll do milk. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, and you know, working on this for a while, this mm-hmm. is one of the many dietary and behavioral mm-hmm. changes that I'm, I'm in the process of making. And then this video comes up on, on TikTok somebody going on about how oats are horrible because they have x fill in the blank one little right. thing and and this this is shown in studies to have an effect on blah 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 well and then doctor i'm going to prove you wrong comes on and and he's like yep you need to look at the whole food because there are interactions in the food and things that combine together and, mm-hmm. and that was one of the things that this is where it comes off all together mm-hmm. stay with me for two more seconds when we were in cincinnati one yeah. of the things that we talked about is how how foods as a whole are there are benefits of that over supplementation how yes. foods interact with one another um 
how foods interact with over-the-counter medications and prescription medications. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. you all excited? I'm just totally amping you up for, for part two here. Yeah. Um, I would love to get into that stuff and talk about that. For sure, time. because that's, again, that kind of comes back to the education piece. Um, and then we can talk about, I mentioned cooking well, you know, before, but um, we talk about that in, in cooking well. Um, and we can talk about it here because those are things that people need to know. Yeah. Um, and it just, you know, kind of boggles my mind that this, you know, should be common knowledge because eating is something you do every single day. Multiple times a day. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully um, you're able to do that. Um, but we need to know what we're putting in our bodies, how to make those informed choices. Um, mm -hmm. If we are taking medications, what things to avoid. Um, and like you're saying with your oatmeal, how to make it so, you know, I mean, you could just eat oatmeal plain, but how do I beef it up a little bit and add? Plain oatmeal is one step above crickets for the time. You gotta put something in there. <laughs> True. Right. Um, but how do I, you know, add other things to it to where um, it's now a complete balanced mm. meal? Because if you're just eating the oatmeal, you're missing things like protein. Sure. Of and, you know, a lot of antioxidants. So there's a lot of vitamin E in, in oatmeal, but you're missing a you know a plethora of other vitamins sure. and minerals. Um, you're going to be um, missing your healthy fats. Well, and there's another thing. So at the table now, we have a, a, a pretty rich combination of, of diet and exercise. Your background mm -hmm. is more in diet. Even though you're an athlete, we'll talk about that next time. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and my background is more in exercise science. Um, I would imagine that there is also a component to a healthy diet, much like when people ask me, well, what workout should I be doing? Yeah. And the first answer for most educated individuals in, on the topic is the one that you're going to stick to. Yeah. And so I, I would imagine that to an extent, there's something with diet as well, because you have urges and there are some yeah. people out there with just, just, you know, you know, stainless steel resolve that oh, yeah. say, well, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to eat this and then I'm going to eat that. And I know, you know, I know people that, that measure out portions and are, are very yeah. disciplined. That's not me. <laughs> it's just not me. And so if you, if you told me this is, you're in, you're out of shape, mm -hmm. you, your cholesterol is high, your blood sugar is high, you blah, 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 blah. At this point, you're going to make it to 70. And this is what you need to do to live longer. And you laid that out. We need to measure this and, and nothing is enjoyable about the diet. Oh, now there's a small chance that I would say, you know what? I planned on living through this century anyway. That's the truth. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just buckle down and do it. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just, I can be disciplined, done mm -hmm. it before, but there's also probably a much larger part of me that says, well, there's something that's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> Might I mean, as well enjoy it. There's buddy. a lot of people like, well, I'm going to die anyway. Exactly. So. <laughs> but what, what you don't get in that whole mix is, you know, at what point, 51, 55, are you spending the rest of that time to 70, just absolutely miserable, miserable. non-functional, uh, out of money because of healthcare, mm -hmm. draw on your loved ones, um, you know, not able to live at home anymore because you need somebody to take care of you. Right. And so much of that can be obviously diet related yeah. and, and preventive. Yeah, in some cases, and uh, like so, that's why you get into the kind of the 
when at least when I talk about it, we talk about lifespan and health span. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at countries like Japan and you know Mediterranean countries and all that, um, you know they have long health spans mm-hmm. and lifespans. Yeah. So like yeah. they're living to be like ninety, a hundred years old, and they're still doing things that are physically taxing at 90, 100 years old, like gardening and fishing and yeah. doing all those things. Whereas then if you look at the wait, West, it's so wait, like, they're, act, they're also they're active. Also Imagine that. Yes, it's like this synergy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so they have a long health span as well. So mm-hmm. the, the amount of time they spend having a good quality of life and a good, you know, quality of health as well. Um, and a lot of that is tied to diet, exercise, and time spent. I mean, again, we can talk about this in part two because it's a very interesting topic. Time spent around the table with family. Ah, uh, yeah. I've seen some really interesting mm-hmm. research. So why don't we leave it there then? If that's yeah. not enough to convince people to <laughs> to tune in for the next one, yeah. um, then I don't know what is. Because we can really yeah. kind of get down to the nuts and bolts of, of how to take this and, and use it. The very next time you go to the grocery store. Yeah. Look it up. Yeah. Sound like a plan? That sounds like a plan. Well, then let's leave it there. And and <laughs> as soon as we get off the air, we'll uh, we'll figure out a time where we can get back together and we'll get a part two out to everybody. That sounds good to me. Well, in the Excited. meantime. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, like, we have been planning this for a little while now. And, mm-hmm. and that Cincinnati uh, convention was a while ago. Yeah. And so I've been very much looking forward to this. And me I had too. a feeling that there was not going to be enough time to cover it all. So let's say we'll do part two, and if it turns out being part two and part three, then we'll just roll with it. Okay, right. that sounds good. In the well, meantime, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. You can't do a part two and part three if you don't start with part one. Right? Exactly. Unless you're George Eagles, but that's under the Yeah, uh, I do. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram.